what we've seen is the 33,000 North Koreans that have come out of the country are fundamentally changing the country from the ground up. And why? Because they're pouring tens of millions of dollars back into the country, which is radically changing the caste system inside North Korea. North Korea is based off of whether you're loyal to the government or you're not loyal to the government. And it goes three generations back where you're split up since the 1970s. You've been split up into different categories of core, wavering and hostile. And you're access to public resources is based on your ranking within that caste system. And mm -hmm. if your family members escape North Korea and the government knows that they've escaped and they usually do, then your level within that caste system goes down. Welcome to season two of Point of Entry. Thank you for continuing to travel alongside us, the Refugee Center, as we guide you through the resettlement process in Canada and the inner workings of grassroots organizations here in Montreal. Stay on board as we explore the experiences and challenges faced by many newcomers to Canada. In season two, we are continuing to do so with the help of our alternating hosts and an incredible lineup of amazing guests. We hope you are as excited as we are to continue along this journey. Thank you for coming along for the ride. My name is Abdullah Dawood. I'm the executive director of the Refugee Center, and I'll be your host for today. Um, today, I'm very honored. I'm very happy that we have uh, Sean here. We'll be interviewing him. He's the executive director of Handvoice. Handvoice is a human rights organization that focuses on actionable policy solutions and research for Canada's role in the Korean Peninsula, as well as resettlement of North Korean refugees. So uh, that's probably all I'm going to be able to tell you. I think Sean's going to be back right here. So Sean, why don't you kind of introduce yourself and give us like a brief idea of Hand Voice and kind of how it came to be in, in, in Canada. Yeah, so um, as you said, my name is Sean. I'm the executive director of Hand Voice. Uh, we started out in 2007 uh, with three law students at uh, at York University, who uh, was looking at three Korean students, uh, who was looking at the situation that was unfolding in North Korea at the time. Uh, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of North Koreans that were leaving the country uh, because of a famine um, that was uh, perpetuated by the, the kind of caste system that exists inside North Korea, uh, but due to um, you know, a whole host of different factors. There were streams of North Koreans that were fleeing the country uh, and um, due to, and some of which we'll uh, talk about today, um, due to China's policy on returning North Koreans uh, at risk of punishment, uh, you know, when they are returned back to North Korea, um, there were images of North Korean women uh, and children who were being turned away, who were being forcibly taken um, at embassies in China, uh, back to North Korea. And, and so from this, uh, three students decided that uh, there was just not an adequate Canadian response. And from there, uh, we, we decided to, uh, you know, build a grassroots, uh, you know, constituency of support for this cause, for this human rights issue, for this refugee issue. And from then on, 
uh, we started out as a very grassroots organization, mobilizing around uh, you know, student centers, as well as mobilizing our Korean Canadian community. Um, and then from that, we started transforming our organization into, okay, this is great. You know, we had exhibits at Nuit Blanche, we had um, you know, candlelight vigils and documentary screenings, but we then uh, came to a point in which we had enough people to say, okay, well, this is great, but what's next? Uh, how, how can we actually make a difference? And, and starting from 2014 onwards, we uh, started advocating for a, uh, a permanent pathway for North Korean refugees to access the Canadian system, because at the time they weren't able to do so. And uh, that took eight years uh, where, uh, Last year, we were able to uh, reach an agreement with the Canadian government to open up Canada as a pathway, uh, albeit through a pilot program, uh, for them to access uh, our, our private sponsorship uh, you know, pathway. And so since then, we've transformed our organization, uh, focusing more on human rights education. We have uh, nearly 20 chapters uh, at different universities from coast to coast. Uh, as well as uh, over 300 active volunteers um, and, you know, nearly 5,000 members across the country that, that's focused on, uh, you know, the human rights situation in North Korea, the, the refugee situation. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's our organization. That's uh, very impressive. Uh, it's a lot to unpack as well. It's a, it's a long journey, right? So what you kind of described going from, uh, I guess, uh, bringing light to the North Korean issue, which I feel mm -hmm. sometimes always like uh, with the media goes up and down. Like we, we we focus on it a lot for a couple of months and then for like three, four years, we, we forget about it completely. And then it comes back up again. Um, so Mark, we kind of, uh, I want to dive into a little bit more of the challenges that you face, mm -hmm. um, just exposing that in the community. Like how much did Canada mm -hmm. not know um, how much of your work was awareness and how much of your work was actually like lobbying and policy change, at least for the first couple of years? Well, the great thing is that North Korea is always on the news um, yeah. because, you know, if you have, if you're building, if your country is building nuclear weapons that can hit uh, the Canadian homeland, the U.S. homeland, you're going to be in the news um, for, for a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of the time, uh, although that I think has changed in, in recent years um, because I think people have just gotten sick and tired of hearing about nuclear missiles uh, being developed and launched. Um, but mm -hmm. I think here, here lies the problem, which is that North Korea is viewed, uh, North Korea trends on Twitter quite often uh, as a comparison. Uh, you know, they say, oh, this is as bad as North Korea. And it's often used as, which is why it often is, you know, something big happens uh, where people feel like their civil liberties are being taken away and they compare it to North Korea. Um, that's usually in the context uh, in which North Korea is mentioned or its nuclear weapons program or um, the, the crazy leader with the, the weird haircut um, that, that hangs out with Dennis Rodman. Um, and, and yet, when we started talking about this issue, uh, it was very difficult for us to focus on more of the human elements um, the, the challenges that the North Korean people face uh, during the 1990s, where um, anywhere between 300,000 to 1.5 million people died inside North Korea. And just to give you a scope of how 
big that is. There are 25 million people inside North Korea. And so to say that 1.5 million people uh, perished as a result of a famine is, is quite a significant number. Um, and yet we still don't know how many North Koreans perished. Um, and, and a lot of this was not, was not covered uh, in interna international media, in, in a lot of the, the kind of discourse around North Korea. Um, and even still today, uh, when we think about North Korea, uh, we don't think about the North Korean people. Um, and so the, the recent exhibit that we had uh, was really a case study in how we can start talking about the human rights situation in North Korea, uh, North Korean refugees at large, because this isn't something that we as an organization that operates in Canada uniquely face. This is a, a kind of challenge that uh, North Korean human rights organizations around the world face. Uh, and so we were able to create a case study in which we thought to ourselves last year in October, when we launched our program, we were able to get um, you know, global media coverage uh, for, for our program. Uh, and yet it doesn't really matter because uh, it doesn't trickle down to the average person, right? No matter how mm. much global media coverage you're able to get, um, mm. the average Canadian is, is it, it goes over their head. And so for us, it was, how do we get everyday Canadians to start talking about the issue. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we thought, okay, well, let's try to think of a marketing campaign. Um, mm -hmm. And from there, we, we thought, okay, well, boiling down the North Korean issue is so difficult. You, this isn't something that you can boil down to, you know, help kids, um, uh, help sick kids. Uh, that's really easy to mm -hmm. communicate and to tell a story and, and to get people excited and, and get people rallying around your issue. Mm -hmm. um, but for us, we found it difficult because it's such a complex issue and it has so many different layers. And, and even getting people in the door is, is quite difficult. And so we thought, well, why don't we actually bring Canadians into a North Korean living room uh, mm -hmm. and, and make it a, a kind of pop-up uh, art exhibit in which Canadians would want to come in and talk about this issue? Because that's the other thing, too, is that um, there are so many social justice issues. There are so many refugee issues nowadays um, that it, it's so uh, saturated in, in terms of what Canadians are consuming, what they care about. And as you say, you know, it comes into the news, people care about it, people post about it, and then it goes yeah. out the door. You know, when was the last time that we, we saw a social post about Afghanistan? Um, mm -hmm. And that was just last fall. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I, for us, it was, okay, well, if people want to, because people in Toronto go to these types of pop-up exhibits all the time, why don't we create a space in which they actually want to enter in and this North Korean living room um, in which they, they were able to experience not just what it felt like to um, the kind of, you know, narratives of, uh, uh, oh, North Koreans, poor North Koreans, them living under this regime, but actually mm -hmm. looking at our, our exhibit focused on how North Koreans are um, uh, using information uh, to, or, or accessing information and using technology to access information, how they're defying the regime and um, uh, and circumventing some of the state restrictions to to be able to consume media and content from the outside world, sometimes mm -hmm. at, at the risk of their lives, at the risk of um, you know punishment. Uh, that yeah. was the kind of narrative that we we started uh, in starting a conversation. Yeah. Sorry for the interruption, but it's time to get you in the know. A 23-year-old asylee named Eden Zibene in Ottawa, Ontario, has been waiting for her refugee eligibility hearing for a year and four months. 
During the 16-month period, she was legally unable to work or study. Unfortunately, once she was issued a work permit, she found it had expired the exact same day it was issued. Not many people are issued permits with same-day expirations. However, far too many newcomers are experiencing similar or even longer wait times. These unprecedented waiting times cause a multitude of psychological and social problems, as Zibene expressed. To learn more about her story, you can read her interview on CBC. Please stay tuned for TRC's upcoming report on these delays to see how you can get involved and help out. And now, back to the episode. Let me latch on to that, actually, because that's very interesting. So from what I'm gathering, it's, it's like a, it's humanizing a, a, a topic, but in a different way, right? That's in a unique way, as in relating to the everyday Canadian, as in like the leveraging of technology, uh, what they're doing day to day uh under oppression right mm -hmm. and how they combat it rather than look at it purely like well it is humanitarian but rather look at it from a purely humanitarian component and like okay there's a famine there's all these things that people might already know but you're kind of exposing them or humanizing the situation in a way that a lot of people don't know that's very relatable to mm -hmm. the kind of canadians everyday life you know it's very unique actually i never thought of it that way mm -hmm. Uh, how did you think of doing that? Like, what was the spark for that particular uh, method? Well, I think it's really leveraging um, entry points and identifying mm -hmm. entry points, uh, because one of the things that we get often uh, on our campuses uh, when we go out and, and speak with people is uh, K-dramas. Um, mm -hmm. People love talking about K-dramas, and there's mm -hmm. one in particular called Crash Landing on You, which okay. is about, it. it's this ridiculous plot of this South Korean woman <laughs> who goes paragliding yeah. and okay. she ends up on uh, on the other side of the border which you know she would have been shot down if it were in, yeah. in, in reality but she yeah. lands on the other side of the border and she falls in love with the North Korean soldier and um, and it's uh, that drama that uh, a lot of people started talking about North Korea mm -hmm. and when we we, we had Canadians enter, there were so many people that asked us about, oh, uh, is this what the, did you guys get inspiration from crash landing on you? I <laughs> wanted to come here because I just want, I felt like this was a replica of what I watched on crash landing. And, and okay. this is, this is an entry point and same with Squid yeah. Game. One of the characters yeah. is a North Korean refugee. Um, and so having uh, these types of entry points that you can enter, especially with our issue, um, with uh, K-pop, K-dramas, uh, K-wave uh, you know, being so big, uh, these are just entry points that um, I think every uh, refugee advocate has at their fingertips of you don't always have to um, have that entry point be a very you know, sad uh, kind of because I, I think to a certain point, people, when it's too heavy, people don't want to enter into the issue and talk about the issue. Um, mm -hmm. They want to support it and they want to post it and they want to feel good about doing something mm -hmm. about it. But if it's too heavy, um, you know, it, I think that there's a point in which it becomes, you know, you have to step back and, and consider whether it's heavy because uh, these, the subject matter itself is heavy or because mm. you're framing it in a way in which there's no agency to the person that you're portraying. And I think mm -hmm. that's a really core theme of why we wanted to do uh, our, our marketing campaign this way, because there's a story that that's not told uh, of the kind of agency that North Koreans hold, whether inside the country or outside the country, 
when you talk about really heavy things like um, sexual and gender-based violence or the plight of uh, North Korean women, the majority of North Korean refugees that escape are women. And the struggles and challenges that they face are uniquely gendered. But when you look at the stories that are told, it's often through the framing of, okay, well, they're sold into forced marriages and, you know, and uh, they're, they're in the sex trafficking, uh, they're, you know, sold into sex trafficking and whatnot. And these mm -hmm. are very heavy subjects. But at the same time, there are also North Korean women who um, strategically are, um, you know, staying in, in China at risk uh, of, of you know, to their um, mm -hmm. at, at risk of harm to learn Chinese, to operate Chinese markets and are able to mm -hmm. learn Chinese very quickly in order to survive. And so some of those stories aren't being told. And, and so I think it's a matter of framing and, and mm -hmm. having an issue that, that gives agency to the people that you're, you know, supporting. So, I mean, uh, this is something that we face too, and we do advocacy work when it comes to refugees. So there's two things, kind of like compassion fatigue, so there's, because like you said, it's something that comes up readily now. Like there's so, unfortunately, there's so many different crises going on in the world. Uh, there's refugee populations only increasing. Just this year, the UNHCR said it increased again. Um, so there was, when it comes to compassion fatigue, and then the second thing is helplessness. Like they feel like they can't really yeah. do anything, right? Um, and especially when it comes to the North Korean uh, issue, mm -hmm. uh, just speaking from my experience, right, uh, when, mm -hmm. and I've studied the issue, and I've, uh, I've had a lot of Korean friends who tell me a lot about it, mm -hmm. and, and whenever we talk about North Korea, it's always like, oh, well, there's really nothing you can do. Uh, it's like, uh, it's cut off from the rest of the world, uh, it's, it's impossible for them to get out, a lot of them don't know what's really going on in the world, so then they, they kind of box you into this corner where like, okay, there's really nothing I can do, right, like, mm -hmm. uh, as much yeah. as I want to help, there's really nothing mm -hmm. I can do. Uh, did you kind of face that when, when you were kind of uh, bringing up this topic among the public or just even in front of uh, different policymakers in Canada? Was that like, uh, were those two kind of components of compassion and fatigue and, and helplessness mm -hmm. out there? And, and if so, how did you kind of overcome those, uh, those issues? Uh, yeah, I, I think there is definitely that. Uh, and which mm -hmm. is why we started advocating for this public policy, because mm -hmm. we found that, I mean, North Korea is a long burning issue. It's not one that's mm -hmm. going to go away. Um, mm -hmm. You know, at the height of it, 2013, 2014, there was an international inquiry. There was a UN commission um, that that had a, a, a groundbreaking report um, in which uh, states felt obligated to act, elevating the issue all the way to the UN Security Council, a human rights issue all the way to the UN Security Council. And yet, since 2014, very little has changed inside North Korea. Um, mm -hmm. And so th there is that feeling of helplessness. Um, I think there's less so with the North Korean refugee issue, because mm -hmm. there is a sense of you are, um, you know, actively, there are organizations that actively rescue North Koreans and help uh, bring them to safety, because um, you know, for a lot of, um, it's not just resettlement in our case, it's, it's a matter of life and death for a lot of North Koreans that are traveling through um, incredibly difficult, uh, arduous, um, you know, pathways uh, to, to even get to safety. And so there is a sense that you can help uh, North Korean refugees. But I think here's, here's the issue. Mm -hmm. um, I think that when you're looking at refugee narratives, it's often only isolated to, it's hard to get excited because 
you know, there is that compassion fatigue. And in some ways it's linked to that helplessness equation in that if the issue, you know, in, in this country is so far away and it just seems unresolvable and refugees are, are coming out of the country and you're resettling that, that group of refugees, then it's the sense of, well, they're going to constantly be, you know, refugees that leave these uh, these countries because of this ongoing issue that's there. And, and, and there, there's that sense of helplessness and cynicism of, okay, well, when, when is that, you know, when is this going to end where there are no refugees that are coming out of this country because this country is becoming, you know, more, and the, the situation in the country is becoming better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where I think a lot of organizations need to think of a larger theory of change, where for us, it's a matter of when you're investing in North Korean refugees, you're not just investing in the, the lives of the refugee families themselves, which is incredibly important. But what we've seen is the 33,000 North Koreans that have come out of the country are fundamentally changing the country from the ground up. And why? Because they're pouring tens of millions of dollars back into the country, which is radically changing the caste system inside North Korea. North Korea is based off of whether you're loyal to the government or you're not loyal to the government. And it goes three generations back where you're split up since the 1970s. You've been split up into different categories of core, wavering and hostile. And you're access to public resources is based on your ranking within that caste system. And if your family members escape North Korea and the government knows that they've escaped and they usually do, then your level within that caste system goes down. And so if you're the VP of a mining company and your family members escape, then you become demoted to you know, a farm, farm worker and your mm-hmm. access to public goods decrease. But what's happening is that with North Koreans that have created this market, secondary market economy, in which it's based off of bribing government officials to operate their their own businesses, Mm -hmm. and you have money that's pouring into the country in remittances and Mm -hmm. building a, a different kind of society from the ground up, you're radically changing North Korea from from the inside out. Uh, and what you're doing is you're creating a North Korea that in the future may become more res- responsive, a, a North Korean government that might be, become more responsive to its mm-hmm. population, given that these market forces have a lot more power. You also have, when you're looking at the history of the North Korean human rights movement, it's been generated by North Korean refugees that have left that are speaking out against the government and testifying and, and reliving their traumatic experiences at some of the highest levels of within the international stage, within, you know, uh, sitting at the White House, speaking with presidents, uh, talking about their experiences, mm-hmm. which led to, you know, in 2004, the U.S. Congress passing in a bipartisan way, the North Korean Human Rights Act, uh, which is a huge piece of domestic legislation that was generated by North Korean escapee testimony. And so I think the theory of change is when, when you invest in North Korean refugees, you're investing in the future of the country and you're essentially helping change the country from the ground up, whether that be from the kind of testimony that, that that's gathered from North Korean refugees um, that, that you know, are, are used to challenge the regime in, in the kind of human rights violations that they have, mm-hmm. or, or laying a framework for transitional justice, 
or mm-hmm. even just the remittances that go back and are fueling you know, small businesses from inside the country. And so I think that's the kind of larger theory of change that needs to be that needs to be communicated because it's not this feeling of helplessness of oh you know what can helping one North Korean refugee family do? It's a mm-hmm. matter of well what you're doing is you're actually changing the country. Mm-hmm. I mean that's a very unique way to look at it. I mean that's obviously I don't think it uh, when we advocate for for refugees to be part of the community, whether it be in in Canada or the United States or parts of Europe or or Asia, uh, we always forget that, uh, you know, refugees uh, are uh, products of circumstance, right? They're not Mm -hmm. uh, individuals who chose to migrate, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, they always have this sense of longing, uh, Mm -hmm. even if the situation was horrendous back where they came from, or uh, like very much so in North Korea and other parts of the world, when they are sent back, they do face death. And, and that mm-hmm. is a serious thing. And a lot of them, um, even with that threat, they feel that it's their home, right? It's what they know. Mm-hmm. So they'll always advocate to make sure that uh, like future generations either don't have to go mm-hmm. through what they have to go through yeah. or uh, push for a better home you know, push for a, a, a situation in which they can eventually, you know, visit, go back, show their mm-hmm. children, you know, their, 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 their roots. And we see that even at the refugee center, we see that there's a mm-hmm. high level of civic engagement among refugees mm-hmm. uh, of the topics that they care about, um, yeah. particularly because it's kind of it's their story. It's, their, it's, it's what they have to go through and it's what they can relate to the most. Mm-hmm. And What's interesting is that in Canada and in and, and the United States and, and, and other countries, there are avenues for them to do so, right? And mm-hmm. to do so freely. Um, yeah. Whereas in those avenues didn't exist uh, mm-hmm. uh, back in the home country. So yeah. unfortunately with us, we feel like there's this, at the beginning, there's always this crazy amount of energy where they're like, no, mm-hmm. we're going to have to go do this, I have to do that. I'm going to have to finish yeah. school in like three years, go to law school, <laughs> do this, do that. That's what an extremely resilient population Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes it's all like calm down. You don't have to do all this fast. You have in Canada. Yeah. You don't have to always accelerate. But mm-hmm. uh, and and that's a very unique way. And, and it, we we do call it theory of change all that kind of. But I don't think we've coined it in a particular mm-hmm. way. And I found that uh, we do a very as NGOs as the refugee center as a lot of NGOs. We do a very poor uh, way of conveying that to the public. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's tough to a lot of people. Always, when they think of refugees, they're thinking, okay, like refugee camps, they come here, mm-hmm. uh, they're on social assistance, they only need help, they don't mm-hmm. have, uh, like, but in reality, when you look at the stats and you look at the numbers, refugees are extremely mm-hmm. resilient, right? They start their yeah. own businesses, they mm-hmm. find employment very quickly, uh, very, uh, their economic contributions are net positive. Uh, if they're single within the first four, four years, they're faster if they're a family than the average Canadian family. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very, uh, I think you definitely hit the nail on the head. Like I think it's something, uh, I think a lot of younger organizations are, are noticing, mm-hmm. um, but unfortunately it's not portrayed very well in the media and it's not advocated enough for kind of exposed enough to the Canadian public. Um, because very much so the Canadian public always looks at refugees as an economic issue, right? Yeah. First and foremost, and then a humanitarian one. But never one of like, okay, these are individuals who are, uh, we're investing individuals who 
hopefully in the future bring kind of the stabilization and peace in the region mm -hmm. uh, because ultimately we don't want to have a lot of refugees right mm -hmm. ultimately yeah. want to reduce the refugee population mm -hmm. um, so yeah so I'm, I'm, it's, it's very interesting that uh, you guys also share that and, and that's something that you're advocating for um, so uh, I know like my uh, my colleagues are going to yell at me if I don't talk about other stuff but uh, in general uh, when you talk about the exhibit, I'm guessing you were referring like this is the kind of the People's Museum of North Korea that that uh, uh, your organization uh, pushed out there. Is it, do you have plans to recreate that in other parts of Canada? Like, what's the future of it, and what's kind of your long-term vision for the People's Museum of North Korea? Yeah, uh, I mean, we're hoping to um, tour it in 2024. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. We'll see how successful we are in that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, endeavor. Uh, but uh, we we had an amazing response uh, mm -hmm. to to the exhibit. It was three weeks long, um, and uh, we raised uh, I think nearly twenty thousand okay. um, dollars with uh, over two thousand email signups, uh, which, as you know, uh, for an NGO is a lifeblood. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we had. Um, around 3,500 people visit uh, from not just from Toronto, but from mm. all over Ontario. We actually mm. had uh, a couple from Michigan that, that visited up one weekend as well. Um, and so we were really excited because um, it, it brought a lot of energy uh, into this issue and in and, and, and starting this conversation. And, and we're hopeful mm. that we'll be able to continue and expand it to other cities um, mm. in, in 2024. Well. Uh, more than welcome to come to Montreal. We'll more than happy to host <laughs> you. Uh, I'm serious, honestly. I would love to yeah. kind of have that here, and we would mm -hmm. love to help in any way we can. I think it would be amazing. Um, why don't you tell us more about the Human Rights Lab that uh, you guys are involved in? What the idea is for that, and what you hope the participation of that to be that you're actually yeah. launching in the fall, right? Um, so we, unfortunately, this is one of our programs that is still mm -hmm. on hold due to COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're hopeful that, you know, in the next, um, you know, in the next year or so, we can, um, you know, we can, we can restart our efforts uh, for that. Um, but I think for us, it's a matter of how we can best engage um, the, the, the student population that we have. Uh, you know, we're mm -hmm. really fortunate to have um, you know, nearly 20 chapters uh, with uh, over 300 student volunteers. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not just Korean Canadians that are interested, but, um, you know, folks that come from a wide variety of backgrounds, mm -hmm. you know, uh, whether that be, you know, those that feel a kinship from, you know, uh, the Hong Kong struggle uh, or, uh, you know, the, the struggle in Tibet. Um, and I think, for us, it's a matter of how we can best mobilize that for change within the broader community, the, the broader North Korean human rights community. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to continuing develop, uh, in, in developing that further uh, as COVID uh, subsides. Okay. Uh, why don't you tell us more uh, about this concept of uh, Asia competence and what is it and why is it important? Um, I think that uh, we are, um, I think there is a sense of, um, you know, 
I think one thing that we are trying to do in the near term future is to become conveners within the broader North Korean policy space. Um, and I think this is important because often, you know, refugee issues are siloed uh, mm-hmm. in, in broader discussions on security, on um, you know, humanitarian aid and development uh, into the country and, and whatnot. And so for us, it's important, uh, not just as a human rights organization, because we, we really started as a, you know, a, a human rights organization, but uh, transitioning more towards, towards an organization that can um, sit at the table, but not only sit, but convene tables in which uh, these various issues are, are being um discussed, uh, whether that be from a uh, security standpoint, an aid standpoint, a human rights standpoint, a refugee standpoint, and bringing different actors together uh, at the table. And so um, for us, I think really that that's where we're headed uh, as an organization, mm-hmm. uh, not just calling ourselves a human rights organization, but um, you know, one thing, one that can do a, a whole host of different um, you know, things, whether that be policy development or education or, or refugee resettlement, um, uh, one that, you know, we're the only organization in Canada that works on uh, North Korean issues uh, other mm-hmm. than, you know, two other humanitarian groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for us, it's important that we occupy the space and are able to convene a wide variety of actors, um, particularly because Canada is viewed as a more neutral space for some of these policy talks. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that's really where we're, where we're at. Hey everyone, it's time to tell you what's up at TRC. Coming up this month is a second workshop in the Deeply Rooted Workshop series, created by the Black Healing Center and the Refugee Center. On September 29, join facilitator Synthusha for a henna workshop. Synthusha is an entrepreneur, artist, community organizer, and founder of a nonprofit organization called Divin Art Foundation. Head over to the Refugee Center to sign up now. And now, back to the episode. What's next? I know we, we talked about the tour, but like what, uh, like for us at the Refugee Center, we have like a five-year vision, like this grand mm-hmm. strategy, right? Where yeah. uh, we want we want to like, for example, we have a program where we want to relocate refugees within Canada to smaller towns because we mm-hmm. feel that a lot of them are kind of in, in the larger cities. We have this mm-hmm. long-term vision of having the Refugee Center spread in all these areas that don't know too much about refugees um very dreamy right so what's what's the uh what's the hand voice kind of dream uh like five-year strategy um where do you see this organization uh uh in in a space which i would mean to say say lacks representation um but the the issue of north korean refugees for me honestly uh as executive director of the refugee center rarely gets brought up um uh although is a very permanent issue, right? Yeah. Um, so with that, given mind with the current context of where everything is, what do you hope to see in five years and where do you see mm-hmm. voice in, in, in that ecosphere? Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. as it relates to refugee resettlement, for us, mm-hmm. it's a, um, we're working towards bringing uh, five families in uh, as mm-hmm. a pilot program. Uh, mm-hmm. It's never been done just because the pathways for North Korean refugees has been primarily South Korea. Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it's, uh, I think uh, for us, it's a matter of resettling uh, the five, identifying and resettling the five families uh, and then mm-hmm. successfully, um, you, you know, conducting that uh, pilot. 
um, by end of 2023. Um, by the way, can you hear background noise? Uh, very little, but it's fine. It's okay. Really loud, yeah. Yeah. So our, our vision is a permanent and sustainable pathway for North Korean refugees. Um, mm -hmm. And how we achieve that in the next five years is that we successfully complete this pilot program, uh, which mm -hmm. was established under a special public policy. Um, and, you know, after we um, successfully resettle uh, the five families, uh, we're hoping that they that that would be a, uh, a case study for the Canadian government to create more spots for North Koreans. Um, and, and so a follow on policy within the next five years is our goal, as well as, you know, we've gone from a volunteer organization for the past 15 years to now transitioning into a much larger organization. We're in the final stages of our charity registration um, mm -hmm. and we're slowly building up our organizational infrastructure. Um, mm -hmm. And so for us, it's not just a matter of um, successfully resettling the five families, but creating infrastructure so that when we go back to the minister, uh, we're able to say, okay, well, we not only have successfully resettled the five families, but we are mm -hmm. at a point uh, where we have shown that the Korean Canadian community is behind us, where we have, um, you know, defunding uh, networks in which they're willing to support more North Korean refugees. Um, but the larger, um, you know, scope of uh, the, the funding community that's behind us uh, in terms of our larger organizational infrastructure that, that has more capacity to take on more families. Um, and based off of that, we're hoping that, you know, the theory of change that I, that I shared of a free North Korea, we're working towards that um, by resettling more and more North Korean refugees that have a new home in Canada and are able to, you know, uh, to, to build um, new uh you know, new lives here, here in Canada. Mm -hmm. So that's really our five-year vision. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I'll, I'll touch on, I know it took a lot of your time and, and you're probably getting a bit exhausted of me, but the uh, the last thing is uh, I want to know about, so with us, when we have we have a huge waiting list of individuals we need to sponsor, right? We, we always have yeah. families that come to us, like I want to sponsor XYZ person. Um, and it's usually from all around the world. And it's tough. It's tough for us to prioritize. We don't know, uh, like we have a waiting list. Uh, yeah. How do you go about picking these five families? How did mm -hmm. that happen? I'm sure there must have been some like overwhelming amount of demand once you brought this up. Um, so can you talk more about that process and how was it re received among the Korean mm -hmm. community as well? Because like it is new, right? It is a pilot program. Um, I'd be very interested to kind of hear about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so actually, we face the opposite problem. Uh, not that mm -hmm. there's not enough demand, but mm -hmm. we're talking about refugees that are coming from a low information context. Mm -hmm. um, and so the level of education, the level of outreach that we need to do in just telling them that there is a place called Canada in mm -hmm. which they can come to and this is a private sponsorship program is mm -hmm. immense. Uh, and so mm -hmm. we're working with the North Pine Foundation in um, really conducting a lot of that outreach um, through mm -hmm. uh, North Korean diaspora in South Korea, who still have uh, contact with, uh, with family back in North Korea and, and in China, um, mm -hmm. just to even get the word out uh, because this is such a low information context, because by the time that they reach, uh, you know, the immigration detention center in Southeast Asia, it's mm -hmm. too late. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're not going to know and they're just going to go to the first available option, which is South Korea. And so for us, it's a matter of um, building that, that, that educational, um, you know, aspects um, and, and, you know, uh, providing, uh, you know, more information about Canada and our private sponsorship program.
Yeah, I think just an added layer of challenges. I guess that's mm -hmm. uh, very difficult to overcome. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, I guess why don't you tell kind of everyone who's listening how they can get involved or support Hand Voice in any way, or how you would like them to involve and support uh, Hand Voice. Yeah, um, you can donate at uh, handvoice.ca uh, and uh, we always are looking for volunteers across the country. Uh, and we have a very strong national membership. And so um, if you'd like to join, then uh, please go to our website and, uh, uh, and, and get in contact with one of our volunteers. Awesome. Well, uh, this concludes our episode here at Point of Entry. Uh, thank you, Sean, so much for joining us today. Uh, and informing us about the incredible work that you're doing for Hand Voice. And I really look forward to see uh, where you guys go in the next couple of years. And like I said, uh, when it comes to uh, the pop-up and the museum, if you do need a partner in Montreal, we are here for you. Uh, yeah. To continue to learn more about Hand Voice or the Refugee Center, you can visit our website at refugeecenter.org and our different social media platforms. We'll be posting this, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and TikTok. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode. And uh, thank you, Sean, and thank you all so much for listening. Thanks for your time.